This is Geek Gab with your hosts, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab today, a very, very special extended episode of the show you have come to know and love. We have, and I am not making this up. You can verify this. You can absolutely verify this historically. We have on the show today four, count them, one, two, three, four Hugo nominees. Several of them have been nominated multiple times and two Dragon Award winners. We have writer John C. Wright, the best writer of this generation, the best writer today on the show. The best writer with an earshot. We have Razor Fist, the YouTube star. And one-time AVN Award loser. And we also have Jeffro Johnson, the writer of Appendix N. And so we just want to let you know today, folks, that we, your hosts, me and Brian and John, are going to be a lot more quiet than you may have been used to. John and Brian, out of pure choice, and me, because the lovable little Petri dishes have passed along a deep, dark, dank disease, and I am running a degree and a half of fever right now. So... I'm not sure. In fact, last night I woke up twice during the night and I was legitimately hallucinating. At one point I was looking up at the ceiling of my bedroom and it become an icy cavern with pipes running in and out of it. Something like Hoth from Empire Strikes Back. So having hallucinated twice, legitimately hallucinated twice, I've decided that maybe pulling back on the commentary is going to make the show run smoother. So we are turning the show now over to my hosts, my fellow hosts, John and Brian, to say hi. And then after that, we're going to be talking about Appendix N and Elric of Manibane and Pulp and whatever else happens to come up. Wait, John I, and Brian. First. So when the, when the host is hallucinating and, and is, is, is high on diseased drugs that are in his system – caused by a fungus then the conversation becomes more reasonable and toned down <laughs> that seems backwards to me somehow i know right i i figured once you were hallucinating you just start accusing your ceiling of being a russian agent <laughs> but that's, i don't know it seems to be going around i i think there's a, a hallucination disease that goes around but didn't we agree not to bring up politics we did i apologize well, I, I, don't think, I don't think we can talk hallucinations without bringing up politics these days yeah no. i think I say down with the Ghibellines, up with the Gulfs. Right, whose politics are we talking about? Are we talking about 14th century Italian politics or modern politics? Yeah. <laughs> hey, everybody. It is so good uh, to have you guys all back on at the same time. Uh, I'm really excited about this show. If, uh, if we're really going to argue politics, I think Richard III was woefully tarred by Shakespeare because of who his political uh, uh, sponsors were, and he was really actually the best choice. England would have been in a far better situation had he won. Um, if we're going to argue about politics, then you shouldn't say things that I agree with, because I, I, I completely think Richard was totally, totally maligned by Shakespeare. So. <laughs> Oh, and that ends the conversation. Well, friends, that was another devoted <laughs> show. <laughs> we thank all agree about Richard the Third. Thank you, thank you, Mister Wright. Daddy Warpig shuts us down often enough as it is. I was, <laughs> I was gonna, 
Thanks, uh, I was going to chime in with Richard III did nothing wrong, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> Let's... We're not even through the introductions yet. Already the show's degenerating. <laughs> That's the tagline. That's it. Geek Gab, the most degenerate episode yet. Yeah. We're de-evolving. Did you want to say hi, Brian, like before it. we, like, whatever we're going to be doing? No. No. I okay. do want to say thanks. I say thanks to Mr. Fitzgeoffro and Mr. Wright for gracing us with the presence. Again. Um, you're on, you are not the first uh, guest we've brought back, but you are the first guest we've brought back as somebody other than a host. Brian was the first guest we asked back to come and join us on the team. So we decided that for the very first episode where we had guests return, we might as well go whole hog and invite three of the best guests we've ever had and throw them all on the show at the same time. Well, actually, if you want to discuss the, the real genesis of this, so it was Wright's blog where, John, I remember you said, hey, it would be really neat if Razor Fist and Jeffer could get together and talk about Appendix N. So I thought, yeah, that is a really good idea. So I contacted both of them, and thankfully they said yes. And I thought, oh, you know, it would be a great idea to have you know, the mastermind behind this join us. So here we all are. Well, I'm I'm more than happy to talk about it. I love I love talking old school fantasy. I don't get to talk about it much within the context of my show. So any opportunity to nerd out over you know classic fantasy or sort of mid period transitional fantasy, I, I I am on it like Sterling on a ballpark, Frank. I go to get a drink and the conversation dies. What's up, guys? Razor Fist, are you speaking from back of that motorcycle? <laughs> uh, no, sir. Why do I sound odd? I, I, I just heard some vehicle in the background or something. There's a big airplane going by. Uh, <laughs> leave it on the track. Leave it. Leave it. Here's, here's, here's my – let me start the conversation rolling on the appendix end. One reason why I was really pleased that Jeffrey Johnson decided to do his articles and to start the whole appendix and revolution was because those are the books I had read in my youth, which I thought all serious science fiction writers had read. So to find out that there was an entire generation, that the new generation had not read them, and that there was a generation gap between him and me, between Jeffrey and me, there was a gulf between us that I didn't know existed until he bridged it and said, how come all these good books, how come all these pulps have been have been denounced and aren't being read? How come no one knows who Roger Zelazny is anymore? How come no one's reading Jack Vance anymore? How come no one's reading A. Merritt? How come no one's reading uh, you know, The Moon Pool or, uh, or uh, Shiva Ishtar anymore? Uh, and that was astonishing to me, uh, partly because my my theory, my belief as to what science fiction is really all about springs from that those basic... Those basic books, because at the time science fiction was small, and if you read, if you read it all, if you read it all vociferously, then you you read all those books, or you've heard of them, heard of most of them. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of that stuff has fallen out of fashion. You know, a lot of people are just like, if, if they know Conan, they know maybe the comics and, of course, the films. Uh, except maybe not that last really awful one, but they, <laughs> but they, they'll generally know those things. Uh, but it, it seems to lapse into this situation where we kind of have, you know, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and maybe like L. Frank Baum 
and then it just well, like jumps over this this period for like completely omitting the 60s 70s even a large yeah. chunk of the 80s and we're right to george rr R. martin yeah. and you know, take this massive uh, kangaroo leap over an entire generation of sci-fi and fantasy literature i, I don't want to say it was in salon when I was young, everyone had read Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea books. They were as they were as well known as The Hobbit in, in my youth. And the the pre-Tolkien fantasy, at least most of the people I knew had read uh, uh, The Warmer Rubberus by E. R. R. Uh, e. R. Uh, Edison, for example. And uh, nowadays, only like fans of Lynn Carter's Ballantine books bother to go back and read those. The pre-Tolkien. Um. I don't know if it was in Salon, but somebody had a headline that said um, X and such is covering fantasy from Harry Potter to to Game of Thrones. And I'm like, oh my, that's what, what? <laughs> from Harry Potter to Game of Thrones? Well, you need a, you need a richer spectrum than the last eight years. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk to people. We will be studying world history from 1974 to 1976. <laughs> You'll see people like there's these people that just had their e-reader everywhere. Like as soon as they're not at work or uh, you know not doing something, they have the e-reader out and they're just reading. I talk to them, I'd be like, "Hey, what are you reading?" They're like fantasy fans, and it's always and they're 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 hooked. They're totally hooked on fantasy, and they just never stop reading it. And and it, but but their idea of fantasy is, is is Brooks and Jordan and Martin, and they'll tell me they'll say like, you know, these stories never end. And I just wish there was something, I don't know, I I wish there was something sh like shorter and punchier with the, that actually has an ending or maybe a story. I, I, I'm trying to imagine what that would be like. And you, I, I say, you know, have you ever heard of Robert E. Howard? And they're like, who's that? Oh, good Lord. <laughs> yeah. The happiest day of my life was the day when I, I I've been reading to my kids since they were, uh, you know, children and uh, bedtime stories. And so I, I got them to I read to them the uh, the first twelve Oz books and the other things like that, the, 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 which which you can read fantasy to kids as kids books. But the actual first science fiction book that was honest to goodness science fiction I read to them was A Princess of Mars. And I told them we were in Virginia, and so I said, "This is a story about a Virginian and how Virginians kick butt so majorly they could take over entire planets by themselves." See, so they're big. So that's what their idea of science fiction was. That's the way my kids were introduced into it, and that of course was that. Science fiction written by Gaslight. If you think, if you remember when it was first published, I just I want to know if Jeffro can do his rant about um, the John Carter book. If you could do that sober, <laughs> I don't think that's possible. Yeah, that, that that's a reserved thing. That's only for Jim Fear, man. He's got he's got a lock on that one. <laughs> For me, like my first, I mean, I was introduced to fantasy probably like most kids are on like the Wizard of Oz, things like that. I was obsessed. I still am obsessed with the Oz books. I own every single one. I have the hardcovers. The, yeah, I even have a couple like original kind of editions laying around here. I, oh, I watched. Mean, I went the first through, 40, through all the movies. The 40 or the know? first 12? I'm, I'm sorry. The first, oh, the, the first 12, not the ones that were written by the chick. Got it. I forgot what her name is. Uh, but yeah, the, like after the, chick, after the chick, there were nine other guys too, by the way. So yeah, 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 I know they, they've played hot potato with the authors and so forth, but uh, I, Razor I, Fist, I think your bookshelf, Razor Fist, your bookshelf looks like my bookshelf. Cause I got those books up there too. So. <laughs> and I'm obsessed with the wizard. I think L Frank Baum is a very underappreciated fantasy author. Not, you know, as a children's author, people love him, but I don't think he gets as much credit for, you know, being kind of a formative influence on a lot of fantasy. 
One I would the, really hate to see him get uh, his uh, creation get the same treatment that Alice in Wonderland has gotten at the hands of Hollywood. That would just well, unfortunately, it's public domain now, so we're done. We're done. It's it, <laughs> there's no there's no quality control at this point. We're, Wicked, we're Wicked was the was the modern take on Oz, which was against everything it stood for. Absolutely, yeah. And I I never got into Wicked. I, honestly, I after. I, would, I would believe we should bring Witch Burning back just to get that author. Okay, so a friend of mine recommended it to me, and I could as soon as I got to the the paraplegic witch, you know, with no arms, and I and, and making <laughs> making the Kansas girl into the bad guy, and the uh, the the wizard is exploring, experimenting on animals and dissecting the cowardly lion. I said, shut up, okay? You you're you're guys who are destroying something you cannot create. Okay, yeah. so. It's the exact same thing in Through the Looking Glass. Like the the bad guy, the Queen of Hearts. You know, someone was mean to her when she was a kid, <laughs> and like all oh, it took, Lord. all it took was for good to apologize. <laughs> and it's like, oh, it's okay now. <laughs> it's change we can believe in. <laughs> I've got a, I've got a whole rant on villainy and why modern people don't get villainy. Uh, one of the one of the Future posts in Castelia Hound's house uh, will be about that because I've, I've thought a lot about villainy and what makes people do bad things, and modern people just don't get it. They don't. They don't understand it. And it's so simple. It's so easy. Well, now, I'll, give you, I'll give you a preview. Villainy, yeah. people do bad things because they have impulses to do it, and unlike regular people, they choose to say let yes. You see someone with something you want, and you steal it because you feel the urge to steal it. Everybody's felt that urge. Bad yeah, Andre, people just Andre Sapkowski. Yes. I mean, no, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me tell you a story I heard about from an anthropologist. He he was going over to interview some of the uh, the Kalahari Bushmen, who are among the most primitive people on Earth, who hunt each other with poisoned spears at night so they can kill each other. And the anthropologist was a bit of a of a liberal, a bit of a leftist, and so he did not. He believed the Rousseau theory of that 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 barbarism was better than civilization. He thought that the more primitive people would be closer to nature and therefore closer to the divine. And so he asked them in wonderment why, since they had sufficient resources and didn't have any other uh, cause for warfare, why the various members of various tribes went out at night hunting each other, trying to kill each other with a, this slow-acting poison. And the, and the Kalahari Bushman explained it to him in simple words because he was talking to a dumb white man. He said, we hunt each other because we have hatred in our hearts. It burns like a fire. And so we wish to kill each other. And the, the guy didn't get it. <laughs> I said, ah, the Bushman understands villainy. <laughs> he, knows, he, knows more about, he knows more about theology than the, than the civilized man. Oh, that's metal as hell, too. Yep. <laughs> But, so yeah, modern people don't get villainy, and and this whole trend, and it's not just Wicked; it's that Maleficent movie. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've, we've reviewed these on the Gab. We've re talked about Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass and Maleficent and, and a bunch of these. But yeah, it's part of a general tendency to try to make villains seem good and good guys seem villainous in order to equal everything out because the modern mindset is egalitarian. It they goes think, back to, uh, they think evil is caused by jealousy, and jealousy is caused by difference. So they don't want there to be any moral difference between good people and bad people. They had they to do that to the Joker. To... In uh, the Killing Joke, 
you had to you had to have an origin story for the Joker, the the one villain who doesn't need one. Yeah, that's one thing I liked about the uh, the Heath Ledger uh, Joker was that he would he joked about that. He kept going down yeah. the line of, of having a backstory that explained his evil, and he was just doing it to mess with you. You know, it was it was. I thought that was actually that was brilliant. Great. That and that story understood villainy. There are some the line. There are some people who just want to see the world burn. That that comes from that movie and is talking about the Joker, and it's true for a lot of people who are in villains in real life and in and in the stories. I want to ask Jeffro Johnson if he has seen anything about villainy in the appendix end books that he reviewed. That 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 agrees with this, this the trend of the conversation that we're talking about right now. Oh, um, what? Well, uh, uh, did you guys see that story uh, by, by Rick Stump uh, with uh, about how Conan yes. didn't he didn't need to have a backstory? Like like I, I tried to watch John Wick. <laughs> I mean, I did watch John Wick, and it's so funny. There's that clip where John Wick is like, "Yeah, people ask me if I'm back." I'm back. You know that that whole thing. You know, I loved that clip, and when I finally saw the movie. And he immediately pivots to, you killed my dog, and it's the only thing that my life. It's like, why does he need this as a motivation? I mean, I mean Rick, Rick Stump ruined this, because I, I can't watch this movie now without seeing uh, his... For those, for those in our audience who haven't read the article you're referring to, what was, what was the theory about the Conan backstory that was that, that, that he that he put forward. You didn't need one. It's it's like uh, the, the Clint Eastwood uh, the the man with no name in the in the spaghetti west. Right. Yeah, right. Need... more specifically, Conan in the movie in the in the movie with uh, with uh, 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 starring Darth Vader. I forget in Arnold Schwarzenegger. Darth Vader's not his name. Uh, famous James Earl Jones. Jones. James Earl Jones, the voice, the guy with the best voice speaking voice in in the world. Uh, they had him kill the guys. The, uh, uh, the parents of Cull before his eyes. Excuse me, that's a Freudian slip. Conan before his eyes. The reason I said Cull is because in the Cull stories, Cull is actually captured as a slave and you know, uh, and, and has revenge as, as his motivation, whereas Conan does not. Conan goes out adventuring because he's bored. He right. wants to see the world. He wants to test his strength against the, the monsters and the magicians of, of Stygia and so on. It, and and so you look you look back in the old stories like approximately before nineteen eighty and then especially before nineteen forty, uh, you know, you, protagonists don't need a reason to protag, and they don't need <laughs> a huge setup, and then evil doesn't need a backstory either. Evil is just doing whatever it does, and you have this this epic clash between between the two, and th there's no prelude, there's no preamble, there's no. There's no asides. There's no like, oh, by the way, the, the, this character, uh, you know, he had a, a tough upbringing. You know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's not like West Side Story where they, you know, the, the, the kids and the police officer, Officer Crumpke, right? None but of that's there. Know, but now what? But if you notice in that Officer Crumpke song, he's doing the same thing Heath Ledger's Joker did. They're making fun of the attempt to explain away their juvenile delinquent behavior. The kids are saying it's not that, right? In that song. Yeah. They're saying we don't care. Yeah. You. <laughs> it was it was yeah it was being satirized in the in the 50s but now uh the the people that have that kind of thinking uh, have been working on consolidating their grip on the culture for how many years 60 80 years it's since 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 the garden of eden at least i i disliked the movie version of lord of the rings there are many many things i liked about the movie version uh, the art direction was perfect the uh they got the real Gandalf to play Gandalf, the real Sam to play Sam. I, I like a lot of things about it. But they decide to have Aragorn be played as a guy who was uncertain of his destiny. They wanted to make him the reluctant hero who has to be mm -hmm. pushed into being a hero. And he was not that way in the 
in the story. What's uh, Pippin going to do if you give that arc to Aragorn? Like, what's Pippin there for? <laughs> and I think that the movie could have been improved if they had put in ninjas and Elric. Because I've never, <laughs> I've never written a scene where if I didn't throw ninjas in, the scene became better. And yeah. <laughs> and that's and that does actually bring us to an interesting point. I think Elric is kind of the story that began to upend a lot of those conventions. And yet at the same time, no matter how much he bridled against it, um, at the end of the day, uh, Elric is still kind of formulaic and pulp in the sense that there is a there is a binary morality, but the ma the morality is not black and white. It, instead of good versus evil, it was law versus chaos. So uh, even even though he was attempting to subvert. Uh, the conventions of the established genre, he wound up falling back into those conventions. He just reinvented them. I, I love he has he's an answer to uh, Roland. He's 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 um he's like it's like evil showing up and, and seeing how awesome good is, and evil says, "We can do that too." And here, let me show you. And it, it's really yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah, that, and that, kind of the same idea. Kind of the same idea with the shadow, honestly, with uh, the pulps, because the shadow is not. I've said this before. I think I said it in my video. He's not. A, he's a hero, absolutely. But in terms of morality, good guy. Period. White hat. Right. But Walter Gibson, he gave interviews upon interviews talking about like the thing that he was most inspired by was like he would just look at bad guys and he was like that guy is way cooler looking and gets right. to do way cooler stuff than the good guy. You and he was the shadow. Wears a black hat, has a black cape, and he's adorned in the uniform of evil. Okay, yeah. and he's an avenger of the night. He's because criminals are a cowardly and superstitious lot. Okay, he's a he, he's he's every he's a bad guy in every way. He operates by stealth and misdeception and misdirection and disguises and climbing walls and suction cups and all the things bad guys do with one different thing. He uses bad guys' tactics to kill bad guys. I've got a question, I've got a question for Razor Fist. What's up? Uh, I um, I I want to know because uh, because you know Elric uh, better than anyone I've ever seen anywhere on the internet at all. Even out, even compared to the game school blocks. I mean, uh, the old school game blocks. Uh, you you just you you know him. You love Elric like I love Car Wars. You know uh, him in a biblical sense is what he's trying to say. This is <laughs> and uh, well, well, he's a, he's a, he's a tender lover. Um, so I I've got a question. If I only read two Elric books. And I and actually that that's the, that actually is the case for me. I've, I've only read two, but if I only read two, what are the two that I should read? Oh, I think it's pretty simple. Uh, you would want to read. I mean, I assume we're talking about novels here. Um, then I would go Elric of Melna Benet, which is the the ideal introduction, even though it is a prequel, and uh, Stormbringer. You cannot miss Stormbringer. Uh, it's sensational. There, you know, that was kind of a big watershed moment for that sort of genre or that generation of fantasy fiction. Because uh, you had all these, every trope of fantasy was completely inverted on that book. Like completely <laughs> at that point. Uh, and I think it, it pissed off uh, fantasy. What was the... I think it was New Worlds, right when um, Michael Moorcock took over New Worlds magazine. Uh, and there was some guy who had been the previous editor, or he was the edi the outgoing editor. Was, or was, it, was it Aldris Bludris, maybe? I forget who the guy was. There's a, You can watch an interview, actually, of... Um, of Michael Moorcock back in the day on this show called Time Out of Mind, I think. 
and he's talking about his struggle with the editors and they said something effective you know i spent 10 15 years to, or however much time trying to establish these genre conventions and i'm not about to dismantle them now those are his exact words to michael moorcock <laughs> stormbringer stormbringer was like the absolute finger in the face of that mentality you know instead of the good guy being destined to win and slay the dragon he winds up riding the dragon into battle and losing you know <laughs> it's like what, what, wait what what he loses every battle in that book they lose every single it gets bleak every time you think it get it's as bad as it can get it gets even more bleak uh which is just incredible an incredible novel it really has to be read yeah. I, I love it because it, it shows um, if chaos has given free reign that even chaos has to turn against it. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's interesting that, you know, again, Michael Moorcock, you know, I respect his writing, wouldn't piss on his politics to extinguish a fire. But um, I, you know, it is interesting that even though he's kind of a hippie, he's definitely from the hippie generation and, you know, self-described. At the same time, his novels... They show a lot of the bad in chaos. They don't so much show the bad in law. There's only a few um, instances where order is seen as a bad thing. You know, they kind of allude to it, but I, I get this feeling like he had kind of an intellectual quandary where he couldn't really think of a viable way to make Ooh. law look as bad. Yeah. Well, with law gets static. Uh, you, you, you really need the, the yin and the yang. You need... You need the male being a contrast to the female and vice versa. You need the good that is a contrast to the evil. Mm -hmm. uh, you, 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 when you have those things uh, taken out of fantasy and science fiction, like you see since 1980, basically, where everything is, uh, is watered down, uh, it, just, it turns it all into gray goo. And then in the gaming side, you see the exact same thing because of the egalitarianism uh, that, that you have to have equal outcomes you know, they make all the characters in the, the new D&D games so that they can't die, and so they're all perfectly balanced to each other. Where, like, in the old school games, you know, having the thief be, like, the worst character class, but then he'll <laughs> live after, you know, he'll be the first one to make it to level three while everybody else is rolling up new characters. That's just really, that, that's awesome in a way that no one designing games today would just do because the culture kind of presets where they're going to want to end up. So they they yeah. can't do what was done in the 70s. It's well, everyone everyone has to be the snowflake now. Everybody has to be the star of their own story. You know what? Look no further than MMORPGs. I, may, I made a, I don't know if any of you have seen my review of Elder Scrolls online, but that was a perfect example of what I'm talking about, where I love the idea of an MMORPG. Oh, fully realized three-dimensional fantasy world. You're interacting with other people until you realize that the problem with MMORPGs is the MMO part, <laughs> the other people that you have to play with. Cause you're in you're in fantasy interactive Middle Earth and you you know you're immersed in this world and then you walk into the marketplace and people are talking about the new Jay Z rap video and you're like <laughs> I don't know about you but I'm immersed. Um, <clears throat> Yahtzee Croshaw yep. did a review of the Conan MMO 
and he said that that was the exact same problem there. She spent the first like 10 levels adventuring by yourself and having every NPC in the world tell you you were the fated one who was going to save the planet. And then all of a sudden you have to, you know, gang up in a guild to go raiding a high level dungeon. And it's like, oh, wow, all 10 of the fated ones have gotten together <laughs> to save the world. It's awesome. And hilariously, that could actually work in an Elric MMO because you know you have all the different aspects of the yeah, eternal, champion. eternal champion. Yeah, it's John, John Digger, you know, the and all those guys. Yeah, sure. That's what I, I love to see the look on their faces. People that come out of that and they sit down at an old school table at a convention and they they have no idea what they're walking into, and you watch them die after like forty five minutes. <laughs> it'll, it'll be like a random death in a pit trap, and the the look on their face, like it's never had. It's it's like. They have no idea how to react. The problem with old school D&D and AD&D is not that it's a bad play style. It's that the books themselves did a terrible job Amen. of describing the intended play style so that game masters and players could just read it and go. They presumed a level of familiarity because role-playing grew out of everybody around Lake Wisconsin who had played in Gary Gygax's game and played in Dave Arneson's game and had grown out from there and taught everybody else. And all of a sudden, when you had that jump from people who had all been playing either directly under Gygax or for someone else who had played under Gygax or for someone who'd played under them, you had a huge jump to where it became wildly popular because it was devil worship and you had heavy metal bands literally on tour were playing D&D &D up in their you know rooms in between groupies and stuff, literally playing D&D, &D, that's real. Um, and so you had a bunch of new people who started playing it who hadn't had that first person experience, and that's when that play style didn't get passed along. So all of those other new people didn't know how to play the game. Well, there's another thing. Now let's, let's, absolutely let's right. be honest, because it actually is a poorly written rule system as rule systems go. For it, it, it is the worst. You, you right. can't play it as written. You just can't. Yeah, you can't. You can't. It, it's much too rules-heavy. It has, it has too few... But, and everything has, that you want to do to fix it is is the exact wrong thing to do in order to get a good play experience. Uh, other than ascending right armor now. class, ascending I, armor class. Is I a good came fix. into I came into uh, role playing through the Chaosium games uh, like uh, uh, RuneQuest and Superworld, and that were based on uh, very intuitively obvious dice mechanics like percentile dice and and uh, uh, you know hero points to, to buy your hero with and so on and so forth, and. It, I was always more familiar with and more comfortable with the storytelling type games, like the World of Darkness games where you play a good vampire, yeah. <laughs> and where the, where the storytelling is emphasized. And so D&D, &D where I, I, was used to, I was used to inventing characters that were complicated and had some sort of backstory to them, because I'm, you know, I'm me, I'm an author, and yeah. I didn't want to have my character die at second level, you know? I've made up the complicated backstory for Kona and the Barbarian, his parents were killed before his eyes by Thulsa Doom, and oh, pit trap, you're dead. Oh, I love to kill those players. <laughs> that's my favorite people to kill. That's one of the reasons I, I like. Uh, I I never got into battle. I, I never got into a D and D very much, but I was really into BattleTech. They have a system in the character creation. One of the things I like the most about it is that it has the um, life modules system, where you actually have to decide. Okay, here's what my character. As you're creating your character, and points are involved here, you get a certain allotment of points for each sort of phase of your life. And depending on how old your character is, you get more or less. And so it actually incentivizes you being a grizzled veteran, 
right? It, it incentivizes you being the badass in the flight jacket and whatnot. Because the, the older you are, the more experienced you are, and you actually get to <laughs> tell your backstory. Here's the school I went to. Here's the military academy I went to. Here's where I'm from. You know, it, it was actually really interesting in that in that aspect. You know, what I like about BattleTech. First time I played, the first time I played Traveler, of course, I played a seventy year old guy because that's how old you had to be to get. To be an ex-military guy who you had a playing the survival rules, John. I, I died. <laughs> I, I, died several times. I died several times getting that character because I wouldn't play anyone else. I'm not playing a traveler unless I own a spaceship. Okay, <laughs> I'm playing an amber game where you can't walk the shadows. Okay, and I wanted to be a pirate because why else? I mean, what else? What is the game for? I want to be a space yeah. pirate. Man. And it's interesting you mentioned uh, Chaosium because I have uh, the the Elric RPG. Speaking of Elric again, uh -huh. uh, they had the oh. Elric. Uh, Stormbringer RPG, which is actually kind of popular for a little while. That is while. super cool. That is just crazy cool. Uh, you, uh, Ken St. Andre wrote that with uh, the the guy that co-wrote Chainmail. And and that's great, and it's fantastic because they worked with Michael Moorcock a little bit. Look, I love Elric, but one of the things his world is light on is like world building. He doesn't. He's not a Tolkien type. He's not like. <laughs> he's not like. Here's the nine languages that I wrote for this <laughs> freaking series. No, his his world exists to serve the law versus chaos narrative theme. Uh, look, let's be honest. There's a lot of fantasy authors who are like, let me make a really cool world, and then I'll put a really cliche story in the middle. of of it, you know, just as an excuse to have this world. Um, Moorcock, the exact opposite. He doesn't. He arguably doesn't flesh out his world enough, and so it's cool to play those role playing games because he actually worked with the guys who worked on the role playing game, fleshing out the world, doing all the world building that he didn't do when he was actually writing these things, uh, which is actually damn cool. It's kind of like an atlas of the Young Kingdoms in a way. That, that's the weirdest thing about the 70s to me, uh, going back and looking at it, is uh, but, you know, besides girls dressing up like uh, a Merit snake woman uh, <laughs> and, and actually doing the full topless in the 70s, you know, they would they, they would go and it, it was just crazy. But you got rock concerts where you got a guy dressed up like Elric on the stage. Right. Uh, and it's, it's <laughs> that was normal. And like you, you get into the 80s and 90s and it, 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 you see all these carbon copies when, of Elric you say the words, that was normal after talking about a rock concert where Elric is on stage. How exactly yeah. are you defining your terms? That, no, that's, that, that's, that's the way it was. You know. Hawk, well, I, let's, I, be, let's be real. Hawk Wynn were on I a lot of I was there when you were, so I know what it was like. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, what was <laughs> I said, I well, let's be that. real. Hawk Wynn were on a lot of LSD. So... <laughs> Having a guy who looks like Elric May on stage, he may have just been having a bad trip. Let's be real. <laughs> and the chaos gods might have actually shown up. I mean, it was the seventies, after all. That's true. <laughs> Blood and acid for Lord Ariok. <laughs> you know what's sad? Now, reason now I'm just thinking of corn sure cultists. I'm going to get that joke you just said because I haven't read the books. They, they, <laughs> you know, I got it. They they really have it. It's you know Elric is a character that I think is is really uh, he could be more relevant today because so many people are cribbing his <laughs> stories anyways. Uh, but I I feel like going back to the shadow. I feel like the shadow is a character because of just the times that we live in that are yeah. so ambiguous and also there's so much rampant corruption. Not without getting too heavily into politics, you know. Look, the shadow was a product of 1930. That was when yeah. the character first came about, and it was we're still prohibition had not been overturned yet. 
right? So yep. there's gunfights in the streets and gang gangsters and so forth. And in, so Shadow is a reply to that. The, in the fifth or sixth volume of the reprint, reprint series that uh, was put out by... Uh, I can't see here. Was it Daw? Uh, he, he goes and shoots up uh, Chicago. He goes and shoots... Uh, uh, Gangdom's uh, Doom. That's a great Gangdom story. Doom. Great story. And so he also he... gets the Romanov jewels, by the way. He also fights the Rus the Ruskies. He does. Let me, let me ask you a question, uh, Razor Fist, because we were talking before the show about Witcher and how that was... Uh, that borrowed heavily from Elric... <laughs> <laughs> and a very loud throat clearing yeah, moment <laughs> and a whole bunch of other stuff someone to go into a rant and he tried to get Jeffro Johnson to go into a rant and he couldn't do it so now he's trying to needle you into telling us how Witcher is completely different from Elric no 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 I've, I've got a completely different question it is related to that question though okay, okay. we were talking about Witcher and we were talking about uh, Elric so I have a related question is how much do you think the original Batman borrowed from the shadow oh my god let's let's take the borrowed out of the equation entirely um i believe bill finger on on his before he died uh came out and admitted they just mimeographed the first batman story and actually several after that it's just that the one that's really documented is the first one it's called the original pulp it's based on ironically was not written by walter gibson uh it's called partners in peril and it was written by theodore tinsley kind of the number two shadow writer that's the thing that's amazing about the shadow pulps you know hundreds of issues and all but like 20 of them are written by walter gibson like walter he did it all himself walter gibson is my hero and he would type his fingers bloody on the on the old manual uh, typewriters back in the day uh, day and night crank out a novel a month Oh, no. Yeah, apparently, he would work oh so furiously God. sometimes that he would actually have to take, like, two days off to let his fingers recover. Yeah. Uh, but but anyway, like, just incredible. And, and that story, Partners in Peril, you know, they basically copy-pasted it, replaced Bat, uh, the Shadow with Batman, replaced, you know, Commissioner Weston or whoever with Commissioner Gordon, gave them exact lines of dialogue, and uh, to top things off, they actually traced artwork from the pulp there's actual <laughs> artwork that's in the no. illustration of the pulps that you can find in the first appearance of batman uh unbelievable bob kane was absolutely shameless in that one of the most egregious you know normally plagiarism is a lot more subtle because people are smarter about it you know they cover up uh <laughs> their their copy paste job a little better yeah. but not bob kane man he just swiped it wholesale speaking as a Speaking as a, a kleptomaniac thief from way back, what I do when I steal ideas from other authors is I always steal from two of them at the same time so that I'm cutting and pasting. No one can trace back the original idea. <laughs> now I have conglomeration or an amalgam, you know. Right. That, that's when, how when uh, Michael uh, Moorcock was cutting and pasting Conan, he oh, did yeah. he grabbed the guy in reverse. Instead of a barbarian, he made him over civilized. Instead of him strong, he made him physically weak. Instead of him robust, he made him. He made him a feat, and uh, you know, and, and addicted to uh, drugs. And instead of being a magician killer, he made him a magician. Yeah. Instead uh, of always getting the girl, he always killed the girl. He never. He never gets the girl. He's, he's as bad as Jack Vance in that in that respect. I don't think it's a single Jack Vance story where any of the Jack Vance heroes gets the girl. <laughs> I got a, another question for Razor. Um, who who does? This is multiple choice. Who does Elric's theme music? <laughs> is is it Depeche Mode? Is it the cure, or is it a flock of seagulls? 
uh, yeah, it's Thursday, the emo band from 2001. Uh, no, I, I, fuck, it's Motorhead, damn it. That's who. <laughs> I had a thesis I was working on um, about the pulps versus later. I said, look, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give you three names from the pulps, and I want you to try and equal this record. And the three names I came up with were the best was Tarzan, Conan, Batman. And I knew I would get people bitching and moaning about Batman and saying, he wasn't part of the Pulps, he was comic book, and he was he came later, man. Batman came after Superman, which is in 1939, man. Batman is not a good example. I was just waiting for someone to fall into that trap so I could pull out the shadow card. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, Superman comes from an amalgam of of two uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs characters, uh, Tarzan and John Carter of Mars. Uh, so with, when you've got uh, leaping oh. tall buildings and a single bound, there's a, there's a little there's more than a little bit of Doc Savage in there too. Yeah, oh. more than a little. But yeah, yeah it, it, the, the Fortress of Solitude is a Doc Savage thing. Yeah, Fortress well, of Solitude, Man of Bronze, Man of Steel. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it go, you could go on and on. But but I think I think the Superman Adventures uh, actually admitted that they that they took the John Carter Mars idea and said, well, what if the what if the Martian had landed on Earth? What if a guy from a, a heavier planet than Earth landed on Earth? Was the, yeah. was the idea. Superman is a much more original idea than than I think Batman was, though. Uh, Batman, it was pretty clear they were just like hey, that shadow guy is pretty awesome. Let's not put a, <laughs> let's put a cowl and a and a bat cape on him, and uh, we'll, we'll take away one him, of his and guns him, and make him exactly like Zorro in every way. But, but, the, but the reason the reason that matters though is because you have these authors who were uh, erased from the history of science fiction and fantasy, like like they're Trotsky or something. Uh, just erased from the photo, uh, and whenever they're mentioned, it's always in this like snide, kind of uh, Poindexter type tone uh, that puts them down for various things. But you know, if you go by influence, if you rate all the authors in the history of fantasy and science fiction by influence, these ones that were erased are in fact the ones that are the most influential. Yep. Yeah, and some of them are still with us. Michael Moorcock is still alive, folks. Yeah, he's still, still he's still kicking and he's still writing books and they're still pretty good books, honestly. Uh, the last several uh, Elric books, I think the last one was like 2005, and he's written the odd novella here and there. They're still great. I was amused that he wrote the Cane uh, uh, of Old Mars under a pseudonym because while he was railing against the pulps and while he was trying... <laughs> Gage in sneering at uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and he was a sneerer. He sneered at Tolkien too. He famously sneered at Tolkien. Oh man, he said he met Tolkien. This is another thing that people don't get. They think he's like a modern author. He was Lord of the Rings was still building popularity when Elric came around. You know, it was it was still kind of becoming the legend that we know today because this is like the early sixties. Right. And uh, he met Tolkien, and his exact words were not impressed. <laughs> Like, apparently, they had a discussion. This is hilarious. I could see Michael Moorcock doing this. Keep in mind, he was like 19 at the time. Uh, he's He meets Tolkien, and he, sa he says, you're fetishizing the... Uh, what did he say? You're, the Shire was fetishizing the British peasant landowner exploitative relationship. <laughs> and that was his argument. Nobody hated England. To the extent I, that Michael Moorcock did, but you read well, yeah. the jewel of the skull, and it's like, 
It's, what is with these British people that hate England? I don't understand it. I mean, uh, you see it, the same thing in the comic books with uh, V for Vendetta. Like, the, the, yeah. England is the worst state <laughs> on the planet. And, like, well, and Michael Moore, I, I'm sorry, um, Alan Moore, very, very much a student of Michael Moorcock in that sense as well. Uh, so that's not surprising at all. <laughs> I don't understand how they could hate their own country to the extent that they do. I, it's 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 mind blowing. Um, like like in uh, in in Jewel and the Skull, England is this whole country of people that wear masks and they have this silver bridge into Europe and they're conquering the world and they like do all this crazy torture on everyone and they, you know they the things that they do to the towns that they take over. I mean, it's like. Yeah, and, and he transferred that over when he started Elric because the Eternal Champion was the first one. That was his first story, I believe. Uh, and then he moved when he moved on to more uh, to uh, Elric, he just turned Britain into Imrir, basically. Yeah, I, I, so, I, 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 I don't, you know, re reading the writers of Rohan, you know, show up, you know, kick kick worm tongue to the to the curb. And then show up to to the Battle of Pelennor Fields. That is the most. That's like England, if England was awesome, and if everyone in England was awesome, what it would be like. Uh, it's, yeah, it's inspired. Yeah, it's like, you mean like the Crusades under Richard the Lionheart? Oh, <laughs> I got everybody cut off. Took a, everybody just took a moment to think. Yeah, that that was pretty awesome, wasn't it? <laughs> I got cut off. I just wanted to finish my my random thought. Uh, I don't think Marcock understood chivalry and uh, honor. And the appeal of a planetary romance is that you're going to leave modern civilized Earth, which is too has too many rules and too much technology, and going to go to a raw primitive planet where men of honor still live and an empire lives or dies by the sword. And that's, that's see, what the appeal is. I think he did. I just think he thought it was quaint because you because in your in his supporting characters. <laughs> no, if seriously, if you if you look at Moorcock's supporting characters, you can see that Rahir, the Red Archer, is clearly there's no flaws in that character. Like he's just a good okay, guy. Okay, uh, he's I'll, all I'll, I'll come to that point. Yeah, I, I just feel bad for everyone that ever trusted Elric. Yes. <laughs> well, they're all dead and they've been absorbed into the Stormbringer sword. So, what you know, what does that matter? They're they're fine. <laughs> by the demons in the underworld, because there's only underworlds in his in his in his universe. There's no there's no. Well, there's Tainalorn. I'm I'm being unfair. Yeah. Which I always thought yeah. was the, probably the same city as Corrin goes to in the Princess of Amber. Well, yeah, it's it, it, it shared across all the various uh, multiverse stories or what have you. And they yeah. even they do their big Justice League team up in the Vanishing Tower. With, yeah, uh, I, I read that. I, I thought it was cool. Yeah. And that the Black Jewel of the Black Jewel of Hawkmoon is the same as the as the Black Sword of uh, of Elric and so on and so forth. Ah. I actually kind of like Hawkmoon better because as an American, I don't mind people making fun of England. But I always thought an Englishman making fun of England is like, you know, making fun of your own mother. <laughs> There's something embarrassing about reading a guy mocking his own mom, you know. Yeah. But I always thought the guys in the masks who were crazy, who were poisoned by radiation, who were evil magicians with high technology and ornithopters and stuff, I always just thought that all that stuff was way cool. I just loved it. Uh, oh, I thought it was way better than Elric. That 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 was just, that was stuff I've always wanted to read and didn't know it. And I, I and I'm reading it and I'm like I can't believe I'm reading it. It's so awesome. It's like uh it's oh, like yeah. literary ante antecedent for Joust, the video game, you know. Yeah. I, you're too young for me. I don't know what just the video game is. <laughs> I know, I know what Elric and Hawkman are, and I, you know, I can. But uh, well, that was on the NES. That's an older game, actually. Uh, it's still new to me. I, you know. <laughs>
well, young I, whippersnappers. I've got a question, um, I, and I and I only see what I see on on you know my my feeds and things that I keep an eye on, and so I, I want to get a, a other perspectives. But it, it seems to me, uh, speaking of uh, decadence and barbarians and uh, times of change and law and chaos, uh, and I'm not I don't want to pivot to the politics, but I do want to talk about what's happening culturally right now it seems that uh if you look at what was what it felt like what things were happening in january of last year compared to right now that there has been a tremendous change and i, I just want to see do you guys do you guys see indications of this this sort of sea change or or is it just me am i am i just you know you mean a change in the science fiction field or you mean the change in the real world because i don't know very much about the real world i'm a science fiction guy okay. i try to insulate myself <laughs> from from reality as much as possible um, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, th th does anything matter besides science fiction, fantasy, culture? No, it's, it's a tectonic well, shift. Yeah, but it, no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Razor Fist is right. Yeah, it was a, it was a tectonic shift. It was, I, I'm a newspaper guy from way back, okay? I used to be a newspaper man, or I used to be a newspaper editor, okay? And I hate the news, viscerally, <laughs> passionately, to the bottom of my dark and somewhat shallow soul. I think of them as a group of liars. Because I felt sorry for Pravda in Soviet Russia because they could be killed by their evil masters if they didn't lie to the people to deceive them. Yeah, but <laughs> does it, what, what do you what do you mean you don't like the Pravda, you don't think it's? Oh no no, I'll continue. Pravda Go ahead. Our Pravda doesn't even have anyone holding a gun to their head, and they yeah. work their evil magic even more insidiously than Pravda ever did. Even though no one I know believes a word they say. Yeah. So I was delighted that the that the that when they hurled the boomerang of fake news, it came right around like the batarang and hit them in the buttocks, and now they're stuck with the label, which was just this week changed by our glorious leader, the God Emperor, to very <laughs> fake news. <laughs> I I have gone on laughing fits like a madman. The police have been called and surrounded my house because of the laughter. They assume something Cthulian is going on in my house. I am delighted because I don't oh, yeah, care yeah. about the other enemies. I only care about the news. The news is my bet noir. The news is my bad guy, and I want them to go down and go down hard and stay down and then be reincarnated as a cockroach. Oh okay, man, that's I'm, I'm cackling every day. I log onto a news website. I'm cackling <laughs> like the shadow. Seriously. <laughs> One of my favorite episodes of The Shadow in the comic book, the the, the, the Wheeland comic book, The Shadow laughs and his laugh is so spooky that the that the criminals throw themselves out of upper story windows to escape from him. That is a <laughs> damn good laugh, isn't it? And that's and that's there what I was alluding to earlier. Actually, speaking of the tectonic shift culturally, I've argued I wish Condé Nast would do something a little more than just licensing him out to some crappy comic book companies because. The Shadow right now is the perfect character for the times. Like, if you don't see the similarity in yeah. the population feeling super powerless during Prohibition, and then the Shadow comes along and he's this vigilante who visits the exact same kind of evil against evil. Yeah. And what's happening now, where we basically elected the Shadow as the president, <laughs> where he's just... See, he's every bit as dirty and low down to the the other side as they are to everyone else. That's absolutely what's going on. If you don't think the shadow would be huge now, you're out of your mind. I, I'm sure that he is, and I can't think of the guy's name. Rutledge Mann, was that the shadow's uh, 
yes. uh, a guy who was in charge of his finances. He was uh, his front man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Rather, I, I, I'm assuming that uh, that uh, Donald Trump, the, the eccentric billionaire, you know, you know, eccentric <laughs> billionaire who was who is taking over. He he's Lam over. he's Lamont Cranston. It's ridiculous. Yeah, ridiculous. <laughs> Lamont Cranston, Don Diego de la Vega, and Bruce Wayne—they all have in common that they're that they're uh, playboys, you know, who don't who don't do anything useful to society, except they train like Marines when no one's looking, and they go out and slaughter the people who are the bad guys. <laughs> it's no, it's absolutely true. And if you don't, you know, one of the great things about the Shadow was that he wouldn't, you know, look. The Punisher's cool; he kills bad guys, and everyone was like, "Hey, look, a good guy who kills bad guys." But the Shadow. To say the Shadow is like a 1940s Punisher is to do the Shadow a grave disservice. He doesn't just shoot the bad guys and leave it at that. He he finds like a complicated moral lesson to teach them as they're dying. Like a, a good example is I was reading one of the pulps. Uh, what I think it's volume four of the reprints, uh, the Hydra, and that's this story. That's this story where. Um, the Shadow is confronting this organization called Hydra, and it, of course, inspired the Marvel organization of the same name. Uh, and it was it was this criminal syndicate with multiple heads, and, of course, the idea thematically is you chop off one head, another one takes its place. It's this massively bureaucratic organization, and that's how they keep from getting caught. If one right. person gets caught, they still right. move on and just replace them. And so how do they finish the story? They freaking, well, beyond all the uh, mythic imagery and the Hydra imagery, I mean, he like decapitates a guy with a guillotine at one point. What symbolism? Uh, <laughs> but at the end, you know, he's been fighting this monolithic organization with all these different heads. The climax of the thing is there, Lamont Cranston, they finally figure out, oh, Lamont Cranston's got to be the shadow, which of course he's not. It's Kent Allard, but you know he's what not, I mean? Yeah. He's getting all the, the world so, so they get Lamont Cranston. And they're like, okay, well, if we we take him to this like dinner that we're having at the top of a building, we can just we can get him and and we'll nail him to the wall, and we finally got him. So the shadow just plays along. He's like, okay, fine, you can take Lamont Cranston. That's cool. So they're and in this rooftop uh, diner in the skyscraper, and and it's surrounded by this circle of like Roman columns. And so they're having their little dinner, and all of a sudden, you, you know, the, the head of the Hydra is like, "I've we've got him, we've got the Shadow finally," and he's he starts revealing his big maniacal plan, and all of a sudden, the Shadow's laugh rings throughout the dining room, <laughs> and he's there at the head of the table, and you're like, "What what what the hell's going on?" And then another laugh rings out, and from the opposite end of the room, there's another Shadow, and then another laugh, and another Shadow, and another Shadow, and they're encircled entirely by shadows. So he literally makes his own Hydra. He enlists his agents and disguises uh, yeah. them as one of shadows. To, one of them to is out for the butler. Yeah, so it's like the it's not only the perfect way of he not only kills the bad guys, he he brings it thematically full circle and and meets their own punishment out against them. Uh, but yeah, That's I want to. Um... I'm going to let you finish, and then I want to answer Jeffra's question real quick. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to let you finish. <laughs> Are you kidding? The story was so good, it disconnected John Wright again. I know. <laughs> My goodness. Um, all right. I want to answer Jeffra's question. Jeffra's question, for those of you that lost track, was, is there a sea change in science fiction and fantasy from January of last year? Let me say this. Um, there is a... Um, 
I love doing these little introductions because they're really complicated and people don't understand how they tie into what I'm about to say. When you're on the ocean, the higher you are, the more you can see, right? That's your horizon. That's your sphere of awareness. That's what you can see. So the problem with modern day culture, the problem with the gatekeepers, the problem with the big five, what they're facing is they are very, very close to the ocean surface. They can see very, very little. Beneath them and beyond them, there's this huge mass of books being bought and sold and written that don't get ISBN numbers, they don't get publicity, they don't hit bestseller lists, but they're selling in, in the aggregate in vast numbers. And each individual title or each individual author may not be selling a ton, but in aggregate, they're selling tons. And they're like, I think Brian would know this better than I do. I think yeah. they're like 45%, 50% of the market right now. Right now, oh my gosh, more, more than that. Um, latest author earnings report does show that, for one thing, Amazon is the biggest share of book publishing, period. Like they're just, <clears throat> they're, they're the largest book marketplace. And then Indie yeah, is now idea. bigger than the big five. Okay. So, uh, to directly answer Jeffro's question, you are at the point of, I'm going to use another analogy, when an when a avalanche starts, it's just one rock hitting another rock, or a rock slide starts hitting another rock, and then all of a sudden things start picking up, but it's still not as huge as what it's going to become right mm -hmm. as before everybody knows what's happening, okay? What you have right now is a large mass of crap moving down the mountain at very high rates of speed, but nobody knows about it yet, all right? I could liken the big five to the sleepy little ski town at the bottom of the mountain where everybody's just going about their business and they're sitting in their freaking coffee shops and they've got their skis next to them and they're sipping their lattes and they're talking about how awesome life is and they don't know yet that the avalanche has already started. The avalanche is roaring downhill and it's about to hit the town and bury everyone. That's where we are. Yeah. It's not so much that there's a sea change. Yes, there is a sea change, but right now it's happening out of view of the people in the big five. They don't know what's going on. And only those people involved in like the human wave scene and the supervisive SF scene and the pulp revolution scene know that there's big things about to happen and nobody in the big five does. That, that's what blows my mind is like when you look at the way people talked to me a year or two ago, um, it, it, uh, it was very, uh, I don't, uh, it, it was very, oh, like, it's like, uh, you know, Jeffro Johnson has done himself no favors by exposing his opinions to a wider public. You know, it was all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> and you get to now, like right now, the, the, the attitude that underlies the, the feedback that I get is, it's, it's embarrassing because it, it's sort of like, people are like, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, it, Jeff, can, can we, um, you know, after the pulp revolution comes, can we still have Campbellian science fiction? <laughs> or Sure, well, just take the pulp stuff and take out the romance. You have that, Campbell. That, okay. It's like they're asking permission. You know, they're like, please, please. Oh, because uh, you're, you're, not the, you're not the leader of the movement. Excellent. They, 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 act like, they act like a couple of guys sitting around talking about Elric and John Carter is a threat to... <laughs> 
to, to business as usual. I mean, well, they like it that. might be a threat to their worldview, even if it's not a threat to their to their business, because of course their worldview flatters them, and they yeah. think that the pinnacle of science fiction is, you know, something like if you were a dinosaur, my love, or one of these modern, postmodern, postrational, postreadable works <laughs> that, are getting, that are getting awards that used to go to books like Dune, okay? And to short stories like Neutron Star by Larry Niven. That reminds uh, me of... Uh, oh, so, I'm sorry. Good finish. Oh, I just, I just wanted to say that during the introduction, Daddy Warpig failed to mention that I have received more Hugo nominations than all of you put together just in <laughs> one year. I just wanted to mention that because I'm an egomaniac. <laughs> Not for a good reason, you know. Well, you, you make a great point about the worldview, and that reminded me of something I just saw recently. My brother got me a copy of Wired uh, magazine, which, as you guys know, this is the wonderful, you know, journalism outfit that, you know, shit on Gamer Doesn't, game doesn't this qualify as child abuse, or? <laughs> <laughs> it, it does. I mean, but it was, a, they did a special uh, science fiction uh, issue. And it was January 2017. This is our science uh, fiction issue. And the title of the issue was, This is the Age of Uncertainty. And, <laughs> and, and the, covers got, the covers got a little drawing of, like, uh, you know, a woman with, you know, her, her child. And, and they're walking through a doorway into the unknown. Well, they got the fiction part anyway. I don't oh, know. Oh, goodness. I mean, yeah. yeah the title says everything, but uh, the but it's cover to cover. Uh, one of the authors was N.K. Jemison, uh, Brian Niemeyer's favorite uh, Hugo winner, and uh, a whole bunch of other uh, authors. And and I'm like, that's funny. I've I've spent the past two years talking with science fiction authors um, on Twitter and on on the Geek Gab. Where are they? I don't recognize any of these people. And it's cover to cover the same um, boring message fic that's been dogging us this whole time. Yeah. They live in this world. And by the way, I should mention, this was often misunderstood. It's not the message that makes it boring. It's the boring that makes it boring. You know? Yeah. <laughs> because Robert Heinlein could write a three-page description of how a spacesuit works and have me on the edge of my seat, okay? Or he could write, a, he could write an essay disguised as a story about how uh, if you don't serve in the military and you're not willing to protect the group, then the group is going to fall. Yeah. Look, and make I mean, look... Like no, it's not the message I don't like. It's the fact that they don't know how to tell a story at all. Yeah, exactly. Like, Philip K. Dick was about as lefty as they come, but how fantastic were some of his just descriptions of how the world around the main character works. Right. Or like, things like that. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... The the narrative is just so desultory. You know, that that's ultimately the problem. Hey. It's just so derivative and so... It's so milk toast. If you want to talk about forgotten influences that influenced the greats, Philip K. Dick was basically following the footsteps of A.E. Van Vogt, who wrote, who was the, he was the crucial, he was the guy who started the Golden Age, the Campbellian Golden Age, which we're going to have to come up with another name for now that the pulps have been rediscovered. We object uh, to that term. Uh, it's the Silver Age. Gone. It's the Silver Age. <laughs> uh, no, but, but then what do you call the 70s? What do you call, what do you call what happens after World War II? Oh, that's Daddy Warpig. Um, the golden age is the age of the pulps prior to 1940. The silver age is roughly from 1940 to 1960 when you enter the bronze age, which is the age of the new wave. The new wave peters out around 1980, which is when you enter the iron age. Um, 
which doesn't really have a strong overarching movement, but it's typified by a it does, lot it does, of it does, it does, it does. Neuro, neuromancer, neuromancer, and uh, those uh, and and uh, people following Walter Gibson, cyberpunk. That's 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 the that was the dominant th uh, theory for that time. But it, there was also a birth of dozens of different mutually hostile and almost hermetically sealed subgenres. That's all typical of the Iron Age. Um, and then since 2000, you've entered the Clay Age, which is the modern gitchy goo. Um, it's not actually science fiction and fantasy, but it tries to wear their skin and dance around as if it is. Excellent, but you're gonna you're gonna run into confusing people who use the older terminology. We're still referring to Campbell as the Golden Age and the pulps as as the the, the, uh, the No, that, that is that is gross propaganda, and I hate it. Uh, I can't. <laughs> hey, I don't like I don't like calling the Middle Ages the Dark Ages because the Middle Ages I thought were the period of the most brilliance of mankind that, and the that, fastest. That was gross propaganda too. And Richard III was completely innocent, and Shakespeare was gross propaganda as well. So <laughs> he could tell a message fiction, but he could tell it well, Shakespeare could. <laughs> One of the benefits of being a bomb-throwing revo bomb revolutionary is that I'm allowed to disregard and have contempt for previous modes, for previous critical frames. Right. Now, one advantage of being a blonde-throwing revolutionary is those you've got a blonde in your arms to throw. It's not the same <laughs> advantage. It's, and I'm not sure why you're throwing her anyway. That was pure nonsense. I'm sorry I said it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what were we talking about before I started talking and I derailed the conversation? What? Save us. Save us. Yeah, this is the show that sounded better. It's, it's in my hilarious head. because I have I have actually been referred to as woman thrower. I don't know. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> My soggy knees. <laughs> I know, right? I, I don't know how I do I, it with I, these soggy-ass knees, but, you know, it, it happens. I, I, I'm going to credit, uh, you know, I, I kind of had an idea in mind when I asked the uh, about the culture shift, and I'm going to uh, lay it at the feet of Daddy Warpig as being personally responsible for what's happening right now. Does he have uh, human feet or a little trotter pig's feet is what I want to know. He, 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 for, he's he's the one that that saw it happening before anyone else. I don't know if his and, fever goes up any higher. He may hallucinate that he does. <laughs> when, he, <laughs> when he started writing we're, these editorials, we're, we're not helping. He's not going to believe that you and I said these things on the show. <laughs> when, when he started writing editorials uh, about Paul, uh, there, there's all kinds of people who ignored what I was doing. But as soon as 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 Warpig came out and started writing about this stuff. It touched a nerve. It, it these pe people react. It it is like he is driving a stake through their little watered down fantasy and science the, fiction hearts. And and it, the pulps they, they, have been bad mouthed for years upon years by the gatekeepers. Gatekeepers like Aldous Bluegris, gatekeepers like Damon Knight, whom I personally despise because he made fun of A.E. Van Vogt, my favorite author. And he basically they, drove Van Vogt out of the made him an unperson. He, he, he airbrushed him out of the picture. He was the third of the big three. He was before... Uh, he, excuse me. He was the first of the big three before Asimov and Heinlein. Where they, 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 they get on. a little taste. They get just this little taste in, in Daddy Warpig's affable style of what yeah. was under the pulps. Yeah, and they there's a... Back. They're There's on a, their hands and knees. And by the way, when I when I when I read, God, please, you're hurting us. Just please stop being mean. You know these other uh, movements are nice, and you're not nice like these other movements. Please, just stop. Watch. Please, don't be mean. That's just just please. And they, they don't understand it. That just makes us more rabid. Yeah, you could. They can blow me. The way they've done, they've perpetrated just shameless 
uh, revisionism on the age of the pulps. Oh, it was all racist. And you you read all of it, and it was you look at the depictions of black people. I'm like, yeah, please look at depictions of black people. Go pick up an issue of the Shadow. Jericho Druke is an agent of the Shadow, and he is portrayed completely positively in every way. He's not portrayed as stupid. I, I, He's not portrayed I can't as- remember the name, but in one of the Robert e. Howard, Robert e. Howard wrote a lot more than just Conan and, and fantasy. He wrote he wrote like boxing stories. Or am I confusing with Edgar Rice now? Wait a minute, I'm I'm confusing myself. The two giants all look the same to me because they're so big. One of his <laughs> boxing stories starred a black man, and the guy was portrayed completely sympathetically, completely positively, and he was the hero. Yeah. You know, so so this this racism stuff. I mean, it's just they, this is the problem. They they don't want to read the pulps. They don't want to. They don't want to pay homage to the pulps. They want to fetishize them, and in order to fetishize them, they have to condense them to their most cringeworthy elements. And that, unfortunately, yeah, I mean, there, there was probably a story here that there was certainly an element of yellow peril uh, to certain shadow stories and so forth. But th- I would not, again, say they were racist. I've read, I've read several but, shadow yeah. stories, and they never portray Asians as deficient physically or anything to that. that but even fact. the yellow peril stories where the, where the Orientals are, these clever masterminds. I mean, Fu Manchu is smart as Shakespeare. <laughs> He's like Einstein. Yeah. Combined with <laughs> James Bond, everyone remembers him. The only people who remember Nayland Smith are guys like me. Okay, because <laughs> the guy's a nobody. The hero's a nobody, right? <laughs> did Nayland Smith ever make it into Marvel Comics? I don't think he did. Not but so much. Fu Manchu did. He's he's the he's the father of the uh, Master of Kung Fu, Chai Kang, whatever his name is. Uh, Shang Chi. Shang Chi. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Who I'm a, may? I, I'm hoping he's gonna be in the Iron Fist show. I'm just, I'm fingers crossed. Man. I I heard everyone mocking the commercial for the Iron Fist show, and to me, it looked perfectly decent. It looked like it came straight from the comics, and I had just been rereading them myself. I'd been reading Heroes for Hire, and so to me, it looked straight up. You know, the guy, the origin story, correct, and everything. And other guys online were going, "Oh, they're just copying the origin story of Oliver Queen." And I was going, "Wait a minute, rich man who puts on a mask and goes out and fights crime at night? Why? Who what? Really? Origin story? Oh my gosh!" <laughs> one thing I like about the Shadow is that to this day, no one knows his origin story. And one thing I did not like about the recent film version was that uh, uh, that that they gave Alec Baldwin an origin story that just I thought was terrible. They did the recent version that came out in 1994. Yeah. <laughs> To me, it is recent, you young whippersnapper. <laughs> oh, by, by the way, folks, I was going to mention this at the top of the show. Uh, it's the 25th anniversary of Wayne's World three days ago, so four days ago. So, uh, congratulations! It's the, it's the 20th, you are old. It's the 20th anniversary of the movie Starship Troopers, which is not. No one is allowed to say those words in my house and say the word movie or film. That film was known as Bug Wars in my house because it has nothing to do with Starship Troopers. In my house, it was called an excuse to look at Denise Richards' cans. Yes, uh, but <laughs> Denise Richards, you don't need much of an excuse because she's rather attractive. But no. you can tell how old I am from that. That's, uh, honestly, any given 90s film that Denise Richards is in, that's what it's called. Uh, but oh, I, I was, also she, like- was she ever in a film where she was fully clothed for the duration? Was that even a thing? Uh, how about in the James Bond film where she played Christmas Jones, the the atomic scientist, Denise Richards, <laughs> atomic <laughs> scientist? There are people who could pull that off. There are really, really gorgeous women who could pull that off. Like the person who was in uh, Into Darkness, the uh, who played Carol Marcus. I, I don't remember the actress's name, but she played Carol Marcus. Oh she could God. pull off pretending to be 
a you know an atomic scientist. Denise Richards, as gorgeous as she is, she should not have been an atomic scientist. She should have been something else. I went to see that movie just because of that clip. <laughs> and then they cheated you because it was the only time that Carol Marcus shows her uh, shows her goods. I didn't see the movie. I had given up on Star Trek. And, and the Star Trek people all came up and mocked my politics. And they all said, Dear John Wright, we hate you. They didn't say it to me personally, but they said it to the group of which I am a member. And so I've, I've given up on, on, on Star Trek. I, and, I've been, and I was a turkey from way back. I mean, Oh, it's the same here. Yeah. I based my entire life on, on being a, as much like Spock of Vulcan as I could. I love that the, uh, the movie that was made to mock sort of the older school heroic fantasy uh, Star Trek style fantasy uh, turned out to be in retrospect what people say with no no sarcasm or no no sat nothing it was the uh, Galaxy Quest that's the yeah. one that people like everyone loves it it presents the things that people want in a movie that nobody else will give them and the thing that was nice about Galaxy Quest was that it made fun of us fans, but it made fun in such a loving way. It's the same fun we would make of ourselves. I thought the same thing with uh, the Guild, which was the online uh, little little episodes done by can't think of her name, cute redhead. Yeah, what's her name? What's her name? She, she wrote those episodes, and she, Alicia Day. Yeah, Alicia Day. She is a brilliant yeah. writer. She wrote those episodes because they both conveyed the personality and the character arc. Yeah, but but she told people that Dragon Age Two was going to be decent. So uh, that that's enough of that. Enough out of her, the, ladies and gentlemen. The muse visits some people that that are not necessarily the best in other fields. She had the muse. <laughs> I, I've got a question for uh, John about Swan Knight's son. There's two people named John here. Oh, well, the, the, you the author... You have to refer to me as Mr. Wright. <laughs> so, um, so the, the story is about this... Wait a minute, uh, you're John. <laughs> Go ahead, ask, ask away. I okay, have questions. Go ahead. The story is about this uh, you know, kid who... Um, and, 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 and I guess mild, mild spoiler. He ends up finding this uh, suit of armor and a sword at some point in the story. And uh, when, when you he... You ruined finds, the surprise ending! Oh, Go ahead, ask the question. Hey, no, you, you ruined... Interrupt, act like a madman, but just ask the question, and I will answer it, I promise you. You ruined Atlas Shrug for me, man. I'm never going to read that now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to read it. Um, what, so, if the end civilization's destroyed and the good guys celebrate? Yeah. Yay! We destroyed civilization! Atlas so, no, Shrug's better anyway. So this kid finds this sword, and on the sword is an yes. N. What? Yes. Why is there an N on that sword? Because you know what I was thinking when I got that part, right? <laughs> N? That you thought it was actually a Z. That, that's the it? Letter N, the letter N is on the sword? Yes. Uh, he's seeing part of its name because the other runes are supposed to... It's, it's a plot point that I set up and I forgot. When the sword was lit on fire, he was supposed to see the rest of the name appear. Uh, which was a name from Arthurian mythology that I can't remember. Because uh, I totally, I was like, that's Appendix M. This is the sword of Appendix N that's going to save the world. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's the, it's the sword from either North mythology or Ethereum mythology, which lights up with, with a brilliant runes when it's on fire. Uh, and I was going to have him see the full oh, name later on. That, that was in uh, Siegfried. Siegfried, uh, he kills the dragon and eats the dragon's blood and can hear uh, birds talk. Birds talk. And, yeah. And didn't his sword catch on fire too? No, no, yeah, not his. No song. 
Okay, I'm, I'm gonna make two quick, uh, two quick announcements. The first one is, talking about Siegfried and all these other Appendix N stories just reminds me of how little time I have to read and how pissed off I am that my reading list keeps on getting longer and longer. But <laughs> the second one is, uh, we've got about, about 15 minutes or so left in the show, so. Uh, I did I not hear the announcement. My computer just crapped out on me again for the fourth time this, in this, oh. this call. So repeat the announcement for me, please. Oh, we, we've got about 15 minutes left. And this was supposed to be the extra long version. We didn't, even get around to, we didn't even get around to talking about whether or not Elric could beat the Shadow or the Shadow could beat Elric. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you'd really have to get to the bottom of which one is capable of more absolute evil. And I'm not sure <laughs> there's a bottom to that well, quite frankly. Ah, but I think that the Shadow would know the evil that was in Elric's heart. Ah, I see what you heart. did there. Ah, okay. He said it. <laughs> Also, he's got a ranged weapon. No, I, I dare say Elric. He can, disguise, he can disguise himself as Moonglum, you know, and walk up with him there and get him from behind. Yeah. I, no, you know, all Elric would have to do is befriend the Shadow, and he'd be done. Oh, well, there's that. Oh. Okay. Um, I get to interrupt everybody. I love being in this position. We had some people. I do. Because uh, when I'm on, normally when I'm on panels with John, I can't interrupt anybody because I'm like the junior member of all the supervisive SF people. So I have to like package all my rants. And as soon as I get like a free two minutes, throw out this entire, you know, 10 minute rant that I've edited down in my mind and throw it out there and then just move on before I get interrupted. But we have questions from the chat. I saw at least one. There might be more. Uh, I think Brian got that. You had a question from the chat, Brian? Yeah, there there have been a couple. So Nathan Housley wonders if Razorfist has read the Shadow Doc Savage crossover comics. Uh, I read the one that was written during the late '80s uh, when DC was doing the excellent uh, the Shadow Strikes comic. They had a brief crossover, and I think I also read the Dark Horse one. So if those are the only two, then I've read them both. Uh, the second one, the Dark Horse one, I wasn't as enamored with. But the one that DC uh, uh, did and crossed over the two books, because they were publishing a Doc Savage comic at the same time. They basically just crossed over their own characters. Uh, that one was pretty damn good, actually. It was it was pretty good. I normally don't go for cross comic, you know, crossovers where like one part of the story is in Batman and the second part is in Nightwing. You know what I mean? I hate right, that. Yeah. But um, but in that case, it was a pretty good story. But you know, but Al Frank Baum was the guy who first started that. I don't know if anyone earlier than he did that crossover garbage. The reason why I read uh, Queen Zixi of X was because she showed up to the birthday party of Ozma of Oz. But, well, Ed Grice Burroughs did it with uh, uh, Tarzan goes to uh, Pelisidar. Pelisidar, yes, indeed. But he's later than he's he's the yeah. next century. He's yeah, uh, Baum, Baum was late. God, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. Uh, Wizard of Oz was nineteen hundred. Wizard of Oz is, is older than the, really than the invention of the airplane. Um, correction, Nathan meant the novels Empire of Doom and see Sinister of Shadow. Or Sinister Shadow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've I've read them both, and I liked the the DC one for um, unless you're talking about the uh, the new pulp. The new, I, I think that's called the Sinister Shadow. I have not read the new pulp crossover of the Shadow and uh, Doc Savage. Uh, I have not really heard whether it's good or not, but I'd, I'd like to read it. This, this thing just came out like a couple years ago or something, I believe. 
Let's see. Uh, another question from way back was... Oh, good heavens. Dernwin. The N is the last letter in Dernwin. I couldn't remember the name of my own magic sword from my own book. Uh -huh. I must be suffering from the same <laughs> hallucination as... You know, Fox I really like Jeffro's version better. I think you should consult with Jeffro on your next book. I do not uh, uh, meddle with the affairs of Jeffro because he's subtle and quick to anger. <laughs> <laughs> so does I'm everyone gonna... think that uh, Drisk Jordan was influenced by Elric? Or Salvatore's character. Uh, Salvatore, big time, big time Elric fan. I would not be surprised at all, at all. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in um, what what's the series I'm thinking of uh, that Salvatore did his most famous one um, from the early, like. Uh, anyways, I, I know several of them are inspired by Elric. I know this much, um, but yeah. I would not be surprised. That's the problem. Like there were a lot of offshoots of Elric that were, shall we say, not of equivalent quality uh, that came later and are still coming out in Game of the Year award-winning video games. <clears throat> <laughs> which, which is, I, I would like to point out, it is actually a great video game, and it was quite a shock to uh, watch Razor Fist's video and realize how much of it was borrowed from Elric. I was like, what? <laughs> What? Yeah, it's it's funny. Uh, you know, people think this is like my crusade. Uh, strangely enough, it was a friend of mine who pointed this out several years ago, and I was like, I didn't know who the Witcher or Elric were at the time, uh, either of them. And so I was like, oh, whatever. I was thinking of picking up the Witcher game because I'd heard good reviews. This is when the first game came out, right? And I'm thinking of picking it up or whatever, and then I, I decide, oh, well, before I pick this up, I should probably read Elric. And uh, needless to say, when I started tearing into the game, it was an eye-opening experience. Um, yeah, and the first, the first game, by the way, the first Witcher game is the closest to the books. So if you're, all the people are looking at Geralt, well, he has a beard. By the way, Elric has a beard in the books for a little bit. Uh, oh, well, <laughs> Geralt's got a beard and Elric doesn't, so that makes it different somehow. And look how ruggedly handsome Geralt is. That's nothing like Elric. Look at the first game where he's like cleanly shaven and he looks sallow and gaunt and really kind of thin and frail. That's how he is in the books, honestly. He's not described as muscular at all. Um, but anyways, that's a rant for another day. I'm actually doing an I'm doing an entire video on uh, the Witcher and Elric plagiarism uh, thing. Actually, going quote by quote through the books because that's just how pedantic the Witcher fans are Look, about this series. You, you've heard my theory. If you're going to plagiarize, do it like Superman did. It took two ideas. It took it took several ideas. One from John Carter of Mars, and one from Tarzan, and a little bit of Doc Savage, and threw him in. And yeah. so Superman's an original character. Original meaning two parents or three. <laughs> <laughs> and Shakespeare didn't make any of his stuff up. He, you, you know that Julius Caesar was a real person made up well, by Plutarch. Well, and it's there hilarious because people come back with. I think people misunderstand the nature of plagiarism as well nowadays because they don't get they what they expect when you say plagiarism is entire paragraphs from the books are going to be identical. Which that's is that's what the legal definition is. According to the law, it's not plagiarism. You just copied an idea. There was actually yeah. a law case between Superman and the Big Red Cheese between Superman and. And Captain Marvel, and the court said you can use you can't you can't you can't copyright an idea, you can't copyright the idea of uh, you know of a character. Yeah, so. except <laughs> except that doesn't really jive with the past. I mean, even if you look at okay, bring up Superman again. There was a lawsuit uh, between uh, National Publications at the time, and uh, who who published was it Wonder Man? Wonder Man came out. And shortly after Superman, and there's actually some dispute over whether Wonder Man was come up with first, 
and just wasn't published as quickly or uh, if Superman actually came first or whatnot. And they sued Wonder Man as soon as he came out. Now, you look at Wonder Man, totally different name, um, slightly similar powers, not exactly the same. And he's a blonde dude and he's in a red outfit. And I don't even think he had a cape at that time. This is the golden age version of Wonder Man. And uh, who's who Wonder Man? I never heard of him. DC DC nailed him to the wall, and the reason you don't know who he is is because they nailed him to the wall in court, and uh, he was never published again. And then, of course, we all know what happened with Captain Marvel and Superman. And those but are Captain two. Marvel won on that case. I, I mean, I read the case in law school. No, 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 no. He won, and then they kept suing, and then they eventually uh, lost, and Fawcett went out of business. <laughs> they just they, they use the law courts to harass them. Courts are supposed to punish people who do that, and they never do. Yeah. Well, and then yeah. and then of course a more recent example. If you want to talk about corruption, and by the way, in addition to being a newspaper man, I'm also a lawyer, so I've also yeah. seen that, and I hate it too. Another another example would be uh, Rob Liefeld with Agent America in the early '90s, where you know you had two characters that were totally different. I mean, Agent America was like I think like a Golden Age, maybe beginning of the Silver Age kind of character, and Rob Liefeld was looking to do. He wanted to make a comic about it, so he just put together an audition together he just did audition pages he didn't intend to do anything more with it publisher gets a hold of it and they're like this is this is gold we're gonna publish this and he's like oh wait a minute let me change a few things they're like no no no, no. we're running this and so the character was a little similar to captain america he was carrying he was carrying like a shield totally different looking shield totally different looking outfit he had like blonde hair that was shooting out of the top of his uh outfit marvel nailed him to the wall and he yeah. Rob Liefeld wound up having to settle out of court and the terms were that he had to, uh, that he could never throw the shield and there were a few other things that he had to change or whatever. But that's just an example of how like, and there's a lot more similarities between Elric and the Witcher, but it's a, it's a good example of how like, you honestly don't need exact paragraphs, not in like a visual medium like video games or, uh, you know, comic books where Elric has certainly existed and so has the Witcher. Okay. I've, I've gone through the entire chat and I've pulled out like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven questions. And really, I'm going to go for the best one because we are almost out of time. And so I'm going to ask uh, each of you, uh, each of the three uh, guests, the question is this. Um, what pulp characters and uh, writers that exert strong influences to this day remain obscure and are due for rediscovery? So I'm going to change this around because that could be a long discussion. If there is one work that you think has been way overlooked that people ought to go check out to uh, rediscover something, what would it be? Uh, let's start with Razor Fist. Uh, well, I mean, I've, I've recommended uh, the books that I've already recommended on this podcast, but there was actually a really influential one that uh, got... Man, they DC swiped this. Uh, I don't know if it was Bob Kane or whatever, but it was a backup story, believe it or not, by uh, Theodore Tinsley in the Shadow Magazine. I, I don't know if it was published in the Shadow Magazine or one of the other, you know, Street and Smith anthologies, but it was called The Grim Joker, and it was all about a clown-faced crime boss. <laughs> <laughs> who's chaotic and can't be, you know, can't be nailed down and he's unpredictable. Uh, and, <laughs> and that, but it was by Theodore Tinsley, one of the shadow writers. And, uh, wouldn't you know it, uh, clown face crime boss came around about a year later. Um, yeah. 
John, uh, what what work that has since vanished or has widely underrated uh, might you recommend people to pick up? I would totally recommend going to Jeffro on this one. Other John. <laughs> uh, uh, John, John, right, left chat again. Jeffro. Oh, okay. Then we'll go to Jeffro. Okay. Uh, uh, I'm going to go with A. Merritt, uh, just hands down. He was Lord of Fantasy. He was the fan's favorite fan favorite. He defined science fiction, fantasy, and horror in his generation. He was huge. Uh, one thing you lose by, by erasing him from the picture is, uh, you know, you have all these people saying that Mary Shelley invented, uh, invented science fiction, right? Uh, it's just totally out of nowhere. Um, you know, when you erase uh, A. Merritt, you, you lose Frances Stevens' place in science fiction history. Uh, she was a widow. Uh, she, had, uh, she had to take care of her kids uh, after her husband died, uh, or, or her daughter, I think. And, uh, you know, she wrote a book uh, that everybody thought was made, uh, made by the top fantasy author of her day. They thought that, uh, that A. Merritt was writing under her pen name. And uh, the ideas in one of her books, he actually copied, uh, uh, used as a template. He didn't uh, plagiarize. Uh, you know, she used the Aztec mythos in her story, uh, and, and uh, Ship of Ishtar. Uh, uh, a. Merritt uses the Babylonian mythos in a very similar way that she did in her book. And so um, it shows uh, at the ground floor of, of, of really what science fiction fantasy is as we know it. Uh, what influenced everything that came after. Uh, for instance, Ship of Istra, I think, uh, influenced uh, probably Lee Brackett. Uh, I, I, I can see it. Maybe there's some, there's some scholars uh, in, the, in the discussions over at Castalia House that will uh, correct me or, or add that in. But yes, yeah. the, if there was a sad puppies or a rabid puppy <laughs> uh, way back in the 30s, there was no need for a sad puppies and rabid puppies back then. But if there had been, Mm -hmm. um, if there had if there had been a dragon award back then, A. Merritt would have been the guy to win it in multiple categories. And the favorite, 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 favorite book of that time, uh, you know, and this is going against all genres, and not just science fiction or fantasy. Of all genres, the readers of Argosy magazine loved Ship of Ishtar more than anything else. And uh, really, one thing I'm trying to get across to people is that uh, these these pulp works have been unfairly maligned to the point where everybody assumes they're just bad, but the reality is that human nature has not changed. And the things that rose to uh, the top in the 20s and 30s uh, are, are just as exciting today as they were then, and they are competitive. And they're being uh, recycled. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> definitely, Ship of Ishtar is, is really, it's huge. It's absolutely tremendous. You also want to read the Moon Pool by the same author because almost all of Lovecraft springs out of uh, very similar ideas that he got that he himself credits to to um, to uh, Arthur Merritt. Yeah, and I, and, excuse me, Abraham Merritt. Uh, I misspoke. I misspoke. And uh, the Dwellers in the Mirage is like a Merritt saying, "Excuse me, Lovecraft. Let me show you how to write a Cthulhu story." <laughs> Dwellers in the Mirage. I'm I'm reading the Moon Pool right now. I've read Dwellers in the Mirage. I like Dwellers in the Mirage lots more. Because there's more combat. Um, I sorry, sorry. That's who I am. Uh, everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. Uh, so, John, who in the world do you think you're saying sorry to after that comment? <laughs> no, no one here. No one in the chat. Minds, fight scenes. 
I've written fight scenes that took up that took up ten chapters in a row. I love fight scenes. Um, so the question we the last question we had for the panelists before we went uh, and, oh, I, and I, I, I didn't get a chance to talk because I was I was offline for a second. Right, uh, I was going to ask you about it. I'm gonna I'm just gonna say our um uh, A.E. Van Vaught because I consider him to be at the very tail end of the pulp era. And he was the transitional figure between the Campbellian era and the pulp era, and he wrote in 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 the fashion of both. Uh, and I would say I would, and he's my favorite author. So, uh, and he's been he's he's one of the big three, and I think he's just been it's ridiculous that he's been forgotten. Does as does he as, have classy dames in space? He has he has the um uh the Empress Isher. So yes. <laughs> Um, yes, indeed, he does. Brass bikinis? Does he have brass bikinis in space? What's uh, brass bikinis was was it was invented by the uh, by the uh, artist picture artist? What what's a good entry level book for people who've never read A.E. Van Gogh before? Van Gogh, Van Vaught. Uh, there is no good entry level book. Uh, uh, I would say read um, try reading Slan. Uh, read Slan. Read World of Noe. Read. Um, Read uh, uh, Weapon Shops of Isher. Um, the right to buy weapons is the right to be free. Um, first now, off, if he doesn't count, if he's too late as a pulp era guy, I would also pick Lord Dunsinay as someone who's been kind of forgotten. He's sort of remembered now because of his influence on Lovecraft, but he's, he's a big one. Uh, and definitely, definitely read Clark Ashton Smith because he's almost completely forgotten except for his, his connection to Lovecraft. But he was really a master of prose. And read uh, E. R. Edison. Read read the Wormerabros by Edison. Um, and then I'll keep you for the week. Hey, I, before you, you, I've got a, got a humble request for all you guys. That was a lot of books you just listed in in the past few minutes. And I'm someone who doesn't have the background and the knowledge that y'all have. Is there any way we could uh, do a little email uh, amongst each other, get that list of books, and then we'll send that out to everybody who listened to the show? Uh, because I'd love to start compiling a reading list. Uh, I'll put uh, if we get that compiled, I'll put it in the liner notes. I'll put it in the description underneath the video. Um, that way, anybody who comes sees the video can. Do you, Do you have any last words, Brian? Before we take off. Again, I just want to thank everybody for being here. I want to thank Razor Fist, Jeffro, John C. Wright, and as always, my hosts Dornall and Denny Warpig, and all of our old and new listeners. This this has just been a once-in-a-lifetime privilege, and I, I'm honored to sit here and just learn from your experts in your respective fields. Well, it'll be a twice-in-a-lifetime privilege if we do this again sometime. sometime. <laughs> find out, find, oh, out when, yeah. find out when Razor Fist is free again, because I, I, he didn't talk enough. For, I, I talked over him too much. <laughs> oh, no, that's fine. I, I, I love talking over people and being talked over. <laughs> Any last words, John? You're just a sadomasochist of speech. You didn't get that from his videos? That's a shock? Are you surprised? I'm so clean-minded. It comes as a surprise to me that science fiction people are weird. I just never thought of that. I'm also going to add, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, go to Amazon, buy Appendix N. As a matter of fact, it should be in the show notes below us. It is. Yeah, get a hold of all of John's books. He he truly is a science fiction grandmaster and a fine-handed fantasy as well. In and fact, he... uh, 
there is a link to the Amazon page for John C. Wright. You can go right to Amazon and check out his books. That's in the liner notes. There's a link to the Appendix N book by Jeffro Johnson in the description underneath the video right now. And there's also a link to Razor Fist's YouTube channel where you can go watch his videos on The Shadow. You can go watch his videos on Elric of Menlibide. Both of those videos, by the way, and he's got other follow-up videos on The Shadow and Elric, but both of those videos on The Shadow and Elric, you absolutely must watch. You have to go watch those. And you have to listen to Razorfist's rant about the wall because he's the first guy I ever heard say that it wasn't good for the Mexicans to let all their people come up north if they're, you know. And he wouldn't build houses. He wouldn't build houses. It was a great video. It was a great video. Um, no. Any any uh any last words, John? Before we take off, oh, other John. Uh yes, John. I forgot them though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> In all seriousness, um, thanks guys for coming on. Uh, it, it was uh, great to have you guys in chat. Thanks to everybody who's listening. Uh, I love doing the show, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Um. By the way, in, in the show, both Jim Fear and Rick Stump came up uh, in discussions. Jim Fear, who uh, does a regular podcast, and Rick Stump, who uh, writes a gaming blog. Both of them are slated to be guests on this show in the near future. Uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about John Wick and, and whatever else. Jim Fear is scheduled right now to come on uh, March 4th. Jason Rennie of Sci-Fi Journal is scheduled to come on. And then Rick Stump is scheduled to come on sometime in the middle of March. Um, and then Yakov Merkin gets to come back and talk about his new book in the middle of March. So that's what's coming up for the next few weeks, at least right now. I've got hopes, by the way. I've got hopes to score some other guests. Uh, Nathan Housley, the... Uh, eminent historian of the pulp revolution uh, i want to set up him to come on the show um i'm laughing at the idea of an eminent historian someone who's gonna start recording the history as soon as it starts happening because <laughs> um, the revolution is the offing the revolution is definitely in the offing okay the superverses have to get together with the with the pulpists and get together with the uh you know uh, everything else that's going on in science fiction and just overthrow these gatekeepers and get science fiction to be awesome again yeah i'd like a nice net a nice pulp Nexus. I know the new pulp thing is starting to happen, but I'd love... I, I would even contribute. I would just love a, a nice new pulp sort of nexus for all of this to sort of congregate so that you could even get, you know, samples of some of your guys' books in kind of pulp form or, or that kind of thing. I would just love that as a I, reader. I, I, just let me give an ad for myself. I write a, I write a pulp that, that is... Uh, uh, a magazine hired me and then went out of business. So I went ahead and published it just myself on my blog through Patreon, and I just passed the hat and asked for asked for tips. Uh, called Superluminary, and I wrote it as a pulp for you know the uh, the uh, uh, Argosy, <laughs> even though Argosy's not around anymore. Uh, thrilling, thrilling white air wonder stories, and I put out one episode a week uh, for 50, 55 weeks, and I'm I'm uh, two thirds of the way through it. So that's my um, homage to the pulps, my homage. Called Superluminary. It's on my website. So I also hope to get uh, PC Bushy to come on the show. I've talked to John Mollison, and he has some tech issues, but we uh, hope to get those uh, corrected when he gets back to a more civilized uh, place. And uh, Ben Rodriguez, um, these are not scheduled at all. These are just people I hope to contact and get to come on the show. So that's what's coming up, folks. Um, this has been a this has been an incredible discussion. We appreciate everybody taking the time uh, to come on uh, the Geek Gab, and uh, we appreciate everybody in the audience. We've got like seven times our normal audience right now as far as live viewers go. So all of you came and participated in the chat. We appreciate it. We hope you really enjoyed the show. Um, 
we're going to sign off really quick. But before we do, I want to let you know, we do the show about once a week. You can subscribe, youtube.com slash geekgab, youtube.com slash geekgab. We are available on iTunes. Just do a search for geekgab. We are available on the Google Play Store. Again, and this may shock you, just do a search for geekgab or if uh, you don't want to get entangled with the vast corporations strangling the life of America, you can go right to SoundCloud. Just do a search for Geek Gap. Uh, the shows are available there, too. And so we have tried to make this so you can go any place you want. The liner notes we talked about will be available in the files on any of those places. So you can check out John's books. You can check out Jeffro's book. You can check out Razor Fist's um, YouTube channel. And you can also get the books from our host, Brian Nehemiah, all three of his novels are linked in the description below. Folks, we are signing off for today because we are out of time, and I'll be perfectly honest, I've got an RPG campaign that I should have started playing in an hour and a half ago, so I'm out of here, okay? I'm supposed to be playing in a Star Wars campaign right now, so I'm leaving. We appreciate you coming, but don't worry, even though we're going, we will be back.